Hey guys, and welcome to the last Q&A session of the day, Giving What We Can with Luke Freeman. My name is Melinda Wang and I'll be your MC for this session. So again, as you guys are already probably familiar with the drill, we'll be starting with um, a pre-recorded talk by Luke and then transition to a live Q&A session where he'll answer some and most, hopefully most of your questions. Now I'd like to introduce you to our speaker, Luke Freeman. Luke manages giving what we can. He's also an active volunteer with Effective Altruism Australia, EA Sydney, and the Global Shapers community. He has a background in marketing with a focus on growing early stage technology startups. He holds degrees and diplomas in media and communications from Macquarie University and Simon Fraser University. And here's Luke. Most of us believe that it's important to help others. We value the lives of others and care about their well-being. When we care so much, it can be overwhelming to see so many pressing problems in the world. One in 10 people live in extreme poverty. Six million children die yearly of easily preventable diseases. Climate change is set to wreak havoc on the environment and economy. A third of women have suffered from sexual or physical violence. Over 3,000 nukes are sitting there ready to launch. Bacteria are becoming antibiotic resistant. Partisanship is increasing and democracy may be in decline. And our food systems cause unnecessary suffering to hundreds of billions of animals. I could go on. And in the face of so many problems, it's really easy to feel like we can't make a difference. But fortunately, we really can. And we have an amazing opportunity to significantly improve the world with the resources we do have, if we use them effectively. So only about a third of people do any research before giving to charity, and only 3% give based on relative performance. This is probably because it's a common assumption that a really good charity might only do a little bit more good than average. But it turns out the difference is much more dramatic. The best charities can be at least 10 times better than a typical charity within the same area, or hundreds of times better than poor performing charities. Some charities even actively harm those whom they seek to help. These huge differences don't tend to come from trivial things like administrative costs. Instead, they almost always come from the kinds of interventions that the charities pursue. To make this more concrete, we'll look at some numbers from the World Bank on interventions working on waterborne illnesses. $1,000 for six months of healthy life seems like a pretty fantastic deal. However, it turns out that giving people chlorine to disinfect their water is about 10 times more effective. And it doesn't stop there. Giving sick kids zinc with their electrolyte salts can result in an extra 33 years of healthy life for the same $1,000. But of course, waterborne illnesses aren't the only problems we might want to address. What happens if we broaden our search to the treatment of any disease within low-income countries? we find the differences are even more incredible. The World Bank's best guess for the number of years of healthy life per $1,000 spent treating and preventing malaria is 200 years. And if we go on to compare this to high-income countries, where we'll often be willing to spend $1,000 for a week of healthy life gained through new cancer drugs, the difference is even greater. And of course, funding sanitation programs and cancer drugs are really important and well worth spending money on. This only serves to emphasize the incredible opportunity funding malaria prevention represents. And it's critical that we act on this opportunity because people's lives are on the line. 
And when we talk about numbers, like years of healthy life or numbers of lives saved, it can be really easy to get lost in abstractions. But when I think about someone I love, I don't think in terms of statistics. I think about the richness of their life, their hopes, fears, and quirks, things that make them unlike any other person. But then I remind myself, that's what statistics represent. Each one of those little heart icons represented a year of life of a human being, unlike any other. They have a best friend. They have a favorite song. They have plans, hopes, and desires. That's what the statistics represent. And that's why we're so worked up about the numbers. But unfortunately, we don't live in a world where we have a strong cost-effectiveness data for every possible way we could help. And some interventions are much harder to measure than others. So when searching for the best opportunities, we found a few rules of thumb to help us uncover some of the most effective ways to help others. The most promising problems are generally bigger, more tractable, and less crowded. A problem is bigger if it affects more lives, affects lives more significantly, or both. For example, curing a rare disease is good, but curing a common one is even better because more people are affected. Similarly, curing a disease which causes a small irritation would be good, but curing a disease which causes a lot of suffering would be much better because it affects people more. More tractable problems show clear ways of making progress. There's a known solution or a path forward. All things being equal, we'd rather work on something where it's possible to get a lot done. Finally, less crowded problems are fantastic opportunities because a popular problem may already be getting a lot of resources. And this is especially true for things that make the news. A rare or surprising problem may already be getting a lot of attention, while ongoing problems like lots of people still have malaria get less media attention because they're so common, they're not news. And yet this is exactly what makes them so important to work on. So you may be able to do more by finding opportunities that aren't already getting a lot of attention. They're either not news or they're old news and and people have moved on, but the problem's still there. It's hard to score well on all three of these. So it's about finding a balance. For example, a problem might be difficult to address, but also extremely important. Important enough that we should work on it despite the difficulty. Here are some areas that people in the community have found particularly promising. One very promising area is global health and development. There are tens of millions of people in low-income countries whose lives could be easily improved by proven, inexpensive interventions. This isn't cutting-edge medicine. It's things that are so commonplace, we barely have to think about them in high-income countries. It's things like making sure kids get vaccinated and have the nutrients they need to avoid predictable health issues. Another promising area is animal welfare. In particular, factory farming. If you place any value on the lives of animals, there is an astonishing amount of unnecessary suffering that we can prevent. And especially promising solutions include legal reform to ban certain farming practices and the development of animal product alternatives, such as cell-based or plant-based meats. Finally, a promising opportunity for different reasons is to address the risks that threaten everyone on the planet. Things like pandemics and nuclear fallout are so big in scale that they are important even if it's hard to measure how much progress you can make. You can't do a randomized controlled trial on policies to prevent nuclear wars, but we still need people to work on those policies. These are just a few promising opportunities. There are many more that people in our community are donating to, researching, or working on. Plus, we're constantly on the lookout for more promising causes.
So we've covered why give more effectively, but why also give more? On the Giving What We Can website, you can use the How Rich Am I calculator to see how you compare to the world. For example, a median post-tax income for a person in the US is about $40,000. That's over 14 times more than a typical person in the world earns. That means just by living in a high-income country, most of us have an incredible opportunity to use our money to make a difference. Here's the impact a typical American could have if they donated 10% of that income to the best charities in global health. Over the course of their career, they could expect to save many people's lives, all while remaining in the top richest 3% of people in the world. Most of us don't expect to save lives during the course of our workday. But by working a regular job and donating a portion of our income to effective charities, we can expect that our donations will save lives. Personally, I find that saving and improving lives more meaningful than anything else I would have bought with the money that I choose to donate. And I'm not alone. I'm a member of the Giving What We Can community, a community of people committed to giving more and giving more effectively. And since 2009, we've grown to 5,000 members, donated 130 million and pledged 1.8 billion. Members of our community have turned their care into commitment by pledging to use their income to improve the lives of others. The most popular pledge is 10% of lifetime income, but many people also make shorter and smaller commitments, and some make much bigger commitments. We find a pledge is helpful for three main reasons. On an individual level, we find that making public commitments help us to live up to our values and stick with the goals we might otherwise let slide. At the group level, we find that joining a community also provides us with the support that makes it easier to follow through with our commitments and the advice that makes us more effective when we do. Finally, when we zoom out to the level of society, we find that taking a public pledge helps inspire others to follow suit so that together we can forge a world which giving effectively and significantly is a common practice. On a personal note, I found committing to use my income to help others has brought a lot of meaning to my life. I know I'm accomplishing something that I care about. Plus, I've met a lot of really caring people who are making a difference in the world. That's an incredible thing to surround yourself with. And of course, giving is just one of the many ways to do good. Our community is packed full of people who do just as much, if not more good, through their careers, volunteering, and advocacy. From people conducting important research in areas like science, economics, and ethics, to those working at or volunteering for charities, and those who use their celebrity, profile, or network to be amazing advocates. I love that we have so many opportunities to do good in the different facets of our lives. So, if you're someone who wants to use your current or future wealth to make the world a much better place, I applaud you. I welcome you. And I'm excited to see the impact you'll have. To learn more about effective giving, I encourage you to check out givingwhatwecan.org, where there's information on our giving recommendations, pledges, and tools like our How Rich Am I calculator. To learn more about effective altruism and other ways to do the most good with our resources, check out effectivealtruism.org. Thank you. Great. Thank you for that wonderful talk. Okay, so given limited time, we're going to transition to the questions. Um, the most popular one right now is, uh, so Kyle said, I've heard that the 10 to 100x statistics a lot in EA communities. How do you, uh, do you have like a citation or a study that backs that up? Yeah, so the original claim uh, was, I think, 
hundred to a thousand or something like that, depending on how you frame it. It's being toned down um, just because uh, there are many ways you might approach that question, including looking at things like regression to the mean. So if the outliers seem particularly good on and the good ones and the bad ones seem particularly bad, you kind of you know if you were to retest them, it may be lower. Um, the original one came from Toby Ord's uh, work on, I think, the moral imperative of cost-effectiveness, um, and that was looking at data from the DCP2, which is the Disease Control Priorities Pro um, by the World Health Organization, and that is uh, some of the data that I was using in the example uh, in the talk, so you're know, looking at those public uh, global health interventions. Uh, we actually have a page on our website uh, which... Uh, is called comparing charities. Um, uh, and if you have a look at, you know, some charities hundreds of times more effective than others in our footer, I think, or in the navigation menu, you can find that. It lists some specific examples as well as has a source for the DCP2 data. Um, and the differences can get potentially bigger if you're looking between different cause areas or and you have different moral weights or risk gaps. Appetites. So, for example, if you have a you know something like uh, you were to prevent the next smallpox or pandemic or something like that, it would be in fact you know many many times higher if you spent two hundred thousand dollars on a you know vaccine program or something like that. Um, so it is actually quite hard to compare. But so generally, looking within a single data source like a you know, systematic review like the DCP two or DCP three, that's when you see those kinds of um, you know, relationships within that data set. Um, so if it's quite easy to make the 10 to 100 times claim, um, mm -hmm. especially when you're looking at average or uh, just other less well-performing charities um, and within a cause area, just knowing that that's a common distribution that you will find. Yeah, I suppose a related um, question that um, a lot of people have been pondering, I'm sure, is um, uh, so different charities, with, if it's within the same cause, um, the outcomes are relatively like comparable. But if they like span across different causes, like are they even commensurate enough so that we can like measure, um, compare the outcomes systematically? That's a, it's a very good question. It's something that I'm often uh, trying to figure out how best to communicate and how to apply that myself. So to a certain extent, that's the work of global priorities research is to think you know, how you might compare things. Um, the biggest bottlenecks in that are going to be things like uncertainty um, and moral weights. So if you're looking between uh, cause areas that are different enough, say like how might you weight the you know, difference between spending $1,000 to reduce uh, the suffering of 40,000 hens versus uh, spending the you know, same amount to reduce the suffering of a few humans, that's a very uh, difficult uh, thing to make a prescriptive you know, evaluation mm -hmm. on like how much people do that. Um, but you know, once you have some, you know, some idea of these kind of moral weights on your own perspective, then you can kind of look at these two numbers and see what the outcomes you're getting and see well, what is a reasonable uh, difference between that? It's much harder to do uh, evaluation if you're looking at things that are in the future and it's kind of uh, the best guess as to how much you might be reducing the risk of something. I think in the talk I gave the example of uh, nuclear fallout, like there are all of these nukes sitting there that could go off and it's important to work on this, uh, but it's hard to do cost-effectiveness uh, evaluations for that. So it's kind of a different set of tools that you'll use to approach that. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, yeah making intercourse. <laughs> yeah, it's a very difficult yeah. problem. Um, and yeah, there are some and ways that people do that. that. So uh, for example, I know Openfield just kind of carve out certain budgets for different things um, and that's how they're approaching it. And individuals might do the same as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very akin to like um, the challenges that the global priority research tackles. Sure. Yeah. Um, so shifting gears a bit, um, Matthew asked a question about how do we um, pitch effective giving to people who are not already aligned with EA? Um, and does this differ from how you'd pitch or explain to people who are already aligned with EA? Yeah, I think the commonality to both of them is actually uh, talking from personal experience. So um, humans, we are very social and we are uh we look to what other people are doing and saying, and I think the previous talk may have even been on cognitive biases or maybe two before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, it's actually le- leaning into that and going, um, beating someone over the head with some numbers and statistics and telling them that, you know, everything they've been doing is wrong and all <laughs> you know, it, that's not going to be an effective strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, talking with someone that, Hey, I'm really excited because I am doing this thing which I care about. You know, I'm helping save lives in this way or I'm helping, um, you know, I, I'm donating to prevent the chance that the next pandemic will happen. Like this is something I'm enthusiastic about. I think it's going to be really impactful. Um, finding a connection with someone else, um, you know, that is going to be much more effective. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we are working on resources to help people with that. In fact, we've got a challenge um advocacy challenge over giving season we're going to launch in our next week's newsletter, uh, which people can sign up and it'll give them 30 days worth of, you know, here's a prompt for something you can do in a you know couple of minutes that will help advocate for effective giving in a way which is going to be easy and accessible. And a lot of the time, it's just awareness. It's like one of the biggest barriers for people donating is often that they don't think that their donations will be effective. So, if you can even just correct that misconception that, you know, donations aren't making a difference in the world, um, that give people hope and and then show your enthusiasm, that's the type of thing that can be really contagious. And if you think back to your own experiences, uh, I know for me that was a thing. It was like I was actively looking, can I make a difference? And then you find this information that, yes, you can. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's quite a positive experience. Yeah, I suppose with any rhetoric of persuasion, you kind of have to tailor the framework of your delivery to that person's personal experience. Yeah. yeah. And if someone's already aligned, then the, the, the communication problem will generally be more around, like, what is the outcome you're trying to get? Is it if you, someone's quite aligned, but you think that they might be not aligned on what the implications of that reasoning is for, say, cause uh, choice? Well, that's a very different conversation. But again, it starts with finding common ground and, and try, trying to truly understand the other person and yourself being open to changing your own mind. So, anyway. Wonderful. So, um, so Salman, I'm not sure how to pronounce that name, asked a really interesting question about rare diseases. So he posited a scenario in which rare diseases causes you know, much more pain than like a common disease, such as cluster headache. Um, and so considering the logarithmic scales of pleasure and pain, um, eliciting the work from Qualia Research Institute, would it not make more sense to consider rare and extraordinarily painful conditions that affect fewer people over less painful conditions affecting more people? Yeah, so um, that's uh, in the section of the talk where I talked about the size, scale of the problem. 
two things I mentioned were how many people are affected and also by how much they are affected. So um, if you have a rare disease which doesn't affect people very much, um, then that's less of a priority than uh, common disease that affects people a lot. But in between, you'll have either a common disease which affects fewer people, sorry, affects people by not as much, um, and a rare disease that affects people a lot. So it's kind of both the magnitude of the suffering or the flourishing that you could have by reducing that or changing it or improving it, uh, as well as kind of the number of people that are affected. So it wouldn't be saying that all rare diseases are off or all low uh, suffering diseases are off because both of those things are part of the equation. Got it, got it. Wonderful. Um, it's a, a related, somewhat related question is um, some really interesting. If you have a high genetic risk of developing a disease, is it justified to donate to charity to extend your own life instead of exclusively malaria nets, for example, um, or similarly impactful interventions, um, and therefore allowing yourself to give more throughout your life? Yeah, so I take the perspective that... Um, there is, you know, many people might have different re- reasons for donating different amounts of money at different points in time, uh, just like we spend money on different things. I cho- My preferred uh, sport of choice is, is rock climbing. Other people might do something else. I have, like different food. We kind of complete human beings with different you know, needs and preferences. Um, there is a part of my life which I have said that I want to use to most effectively help others with money. Um, And that's where I focus on where I'm going to get the best bang for my buck. Um, And then there is other things, other donations I make for other reasons, um, just like other things I spend money on for other reasons. Um, And even when I am, you know, say I was making a donation uh, that I thought would uh, specifically impact me, I would still be interested within that uh, how would I apply finding the best organizations that would be the most effective? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, similarly, as you might apply that equation to finding a good holiday, like you, you're still looking for effectiveness is really important like, when it comes to outcomes and inputs. Yeah, it like ultimately boils down to like this balancing act between further your own self-interest and the interests of others. Um, and like you all obviously have to take care of your well-being, but I guess yeah. like at what point do you um transition to like interest for others and i feel like that um that transition point inflection point is probably different for for each person yeah it's really important for you to discover your own point yeah and and i'm not prescriptive about that and giving what we can isn't um i effective altruism isn't either um yeah it's not a a prescriptive theory about how much you should be valuing yourself or those around you versus uh others that are more you it does highlight that, however, when you do see the difference you can make, it can nudge you to change that to maybe consider others more. Great. Um, so we're going to go with the last question, which is, do you recommend students consider trying to uh, try getting before uh, the full pledge and other advice for why you might pledge or not pledge? Yeah. Um, so I do also recommend uh, on our frequently asked questions. I actually I think it's a really good thing to read all of them before you would take a pledge, um, unless you or you already have a pretty good idea, um, because it does go through things like your know, reasons you might want to not pledge or maybe take a try giving pledge. I would generally recommend um, the. It would be different depending on your context. So for many students, you know. I, I want people to take uh, a pledge very seriously, you know, something that they actually intend to follow through with. 
And if you think it that would be bad for you to do it, then don't do it. And it could be you can donate effectively, you can take a smaller pledge or for a shorter period of time. I think pledges are really useful commitment devices because we're more likely to follow through. Um, but that's why we have try giving um, that you, know, you can say, hey, for the first two years after I graduate, I'm going to donate 2% of my salary or something like that, and then see how that fits. Um, and then make a considered decision after that if you want to aim for something more. But people's circumstances will vary significantly. So, you know, if you come from, you know, enough wealth and you have like a family around you, you have a good social safety net in your society um, and you know that you're going to go into a high paying job or, or something like that, um, then it, I you know, know that would be a context where it would be quite easy to say, well, I'm just going to take a full pledge now. I know I'm going to be able to follow through with it and, and you know, mm-hmm. I don't have to go through that two-step process. But I think for many people, yeah, the right thing might be to think about what is a smaller and shorter commitment I can make first. Great. Wonderful. Um, So I think that's a really nice um, closing point. We're going to wrap up this session. Thank you so much, Luke, for that inspirational talk. Um, And I'm really glad that, you know, you've emphasized on this point time and time again that, you know, EA is not very prescriptive. It's a very welcoming, you know, environment for people to explore their own ideals and where their um, extent of altruism lies. And I I really enjoy that about um, this community. So thank you so much. Um, And thank thank you all for watching. Yeah, thank you so much.